may be seated. Our second lesson is from the Gospel of Luke. It's right here in your liturgy. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord replied, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who's just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink, and later you may eat and drink? Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We've done only what we ought to have done. Now, <clears throat> this uh, passage mentions a slave owner and slaves. I think before we say this is the word of the Lord or this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, thanks be to God, we should remember um, that that is difficult for many, many. Uh, well, let me just, <laughs> it's difficult for, I had this long conversation with a bunch of people about whether to use a different translation that uses the word servant instead of slave, but more about that later. We just decided to go with what was actually there, which is the word slave, and it invokes painful, painful reality of so much of the history of our world that still persists today. Um, Jesus makes good use of what was commonly observed in his society to make points that are actually liberating and freeing. And ultimately, those truths that Jesus would talk about would lead to the abolition of slavery in many instances. And there's still so much work to do. The gospel declares, ultimately, that slavery is absolutely wrong. And anyone who had really taken seriously, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, would have known that. It is a testimony to the stubborn human sinfulness that Christians allowed slavery to exist as long as we did. Jesus, however, as I said, looks around, sees illustrations from daily life, makes good use of them to actually make points that are liberating and freeing. And so, having just read this, we do say this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. You've likely noticed in our lectionary gospel readings this year so far that has been from the gospel of Luke. Um, recently, <clears throat> we've had some bracing teaching from Jesus. Much of this teaching has been Jesus confronting the religious leadership of his day. And Jesus confronts them for lots and lots of reasons. He confronts them for neglecting the poor, for using their power to their own advantage in various ways, which of course meant they were not using it for the advantage of those without power. He confronts them for being stingy with God's welcome, exemplified by their refusal to see Jesus' universal welcome of everyone as a sign of God being at work in a refreshing way. Jesus' universal welcome of everyone 
as a signal of the coming of the promised kingdom of the Messiah. So Jesus, leading up to this chapter 17 of Luke, the passage in front of us this morning, leading up to this, we have Jesus confronting the religious leadership about all those things that I just mentioned. In fact, whenever Jesus was opposing the religious leadership of his day, often referred to as the scribes and the Pharisees, um, pretty much all boiled down to their refusal to recognize that God's kingdom was coming in him, in his person, and in his work, and his ministry, and his mission. As we noted last week, the kingdom is coming in Jesus, and it was starring, from the perspective of the religious leadership, it was starring all the wrong people. <laughs> and the people that thought they should have prominent roles had at best cameos, and maybe no role at all. They didn't like that. Chapter 17 begins, it's not in your bulletin, I'm going to read it in just a second. It begins with a few verses that basically serve as an exclamation point to the challenging teaching that leads up to it. And, and here are those verses, 1 through 5, or 1 through 4, I think it is. Jesus said to his disciples, occasions for sin are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of the little ones to sin. Be on your guard. If a brother or sister sins, you must rebuke the offender. If there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive them. And then we're into the passage that I just read to you, 5 through 10, okay? Luke scholars suggest that verses 1 through 5 serve as a quick glance back at two parables that just happened leading up to 17. One parable, the Lazarus parable, the other parable, the prodigal son. Lazarus, a little one, a weak one, a vulnerable one, okay, is sinned against. And as we noted last week and we try to unpack that parable, there is judgment against the one who sinned against him. And the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son refuses to forgive the prodigal son when he comes back. This son of yours came back, and the father says in judgment to him, this brother of yours, we have to celebrate. Seven times a day, 70 times a day, whatever it might be, you forgive. This is at the heart of the gospel. God forgave the world before he made the world, remember? And so Jesus drills these points home to them in verses 1 through 4. Now what's particularly remarkable about Jesus' exclamation mark summary here in 1 through 4 that I just read to you is that he takes the warnings of those parables, which are told against the religious leadership, he takes these warnings and directs them squarely as warnings toward the disciples. The message is pretty clear, and it's essentially what Paul warns against in his first letter to the church at Corinth. This message is all, all over Scripture, actually. 
If you think you're standing, watch out. Watch out that you do not fall. If you think you're standing, watch out that you do not fall. Now, all of that would have likely left the disciples in a bit of a conflicted and confused state. Okay? Jesus is brave and bold and speaks like the prophetic Messiah that he is. He's also really upsetting the powers that be. And that means that Jesus is on a collision course, the outcome of which will likely not be good. And to top it all off, he's now warning them that they are capable of the same sins that the religious leadership was. Imagine their shock to find that the parables that they were hearing and probably thinking to themselves, yay, Jesus, that's exactly what I wanted to tell them. Yay, Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus saying, oh, and by the way, you're capable of doing the same things. And you probably either are or you will. And so they say to themselves, hmm, all of that sounds really serious. Now, we're not really sure that we understand exactly what he's talking about. We should probably say something. <laughs> we should probably say something. What should we say? Hmm. Got it. Increase our faith. <laughs> right? You can see, quick committee meeting. What do we say? Increase our faith. What exactly did they mean by that? And scholars don't agree, by the way. It's tempting and not without reason to imagine that they're more than a little bit worried about where all this is headed. I mean, when they're saying, yay, Jesus, when he's confronting the religious leadership, the religious leadership is saying, how do we kill this guy? I mean, that's exactly what was happening, right? And they sense something is going to not end well here. So maybe that's why they say increase our faith. It's also tempting and and not without reason to imagine that one of them may be Peter. I like to think it might have been Peter. Peter, the patron saint of impetuous leaders who do not have a filter when they talk. That's why he's my patron saint, Peter. I like to imagine that it's Peter who might have quickly grabbed the gang and said, what do we say, what do we say, what do we say? Okay, how about increase our faith? That sounds good. Well, regardless of why they said it, Jesus, is, Jesus uses it to point out something to them that is at the very heart of the gospel. It is not the quality or purity of their faith, our faith, that's at issue. It is the object of their faith, our faith, that makes faith great. It's not on us. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord, which is why that can come to us from lamentations the way that it does. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. It's the object of their faith that makes their faith great. The God of the universe who is now at work to bring about his kingdom in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. And then, and then Jesus goes on with a little mini story. Miniature story. The meaning of which suggests that the thing the disciples really need to be concerned about is not so much faith. They really need to be concerned about 
is living in a posture and pattern of humility. Now, I've already mentioned and called it out that challenging and distracting thing about this example is, is it is taken from the world in which Jesus lived. It calls forth the ugly reality of slave owner and a slave, not a servant, as some translations have it. The image is a common household image in the ancient world. It's used over and over again in the New Testament to picture the extreme self-giving love that Jesus patterned in his cruciform life as him in the early church. It says Jesus does not regard equality with God as something to be held on to and grasped or used to his own advantage, but takes the form of a slave. Paul uses it to describe himself as he begins his letter to the church at Rome. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, so forth. Like so much of Jesus' teaching, it is a story that is meant to get one's attention. If a slave were just to do what was expected and his master's response was, Wow, amazing, here, you sit down and I will serve you. That would be a shocker. I mean, the closest thing I can think of is on Downton Abbey where all, all the servants serve the people up at stairs and then they go downstairs and have dinner, right? And how shocking it would be if whatever his name is, Lord, whoever it is, said, wait a minute now, you got this backwards. Oh, you come up here and eat and we'll go downstairs. That would be a shocker, okay? That's what's shocking about the way that Jesus tells his stories. It would have never happened, and they know that. So based on that, I would submit to you that the primary meaning of the story is that the disciples and we are supposed to think these kinds of things when it comes, when it comes to Caring well for the poor, what Jesus has just been talking about in the lead up to chapter 17, when it comes to practicing radical forgiveness, practices that are extremely countercultural, they and we are to regard these things as normal ways, normal ways of expressing God's love in the world. They're the way to ensure the flourishing of others and ourselves. Faithfulness is not about heroic efforts in the way we usually think of heroic efforts. You don't need more than a mustard seed quantity of it. Simply being faithful to God in those ways, it's certainly not a means to gain honor and standing. Remember the religious leaders are always wanting Jesus to single them out for honor. Jesus will make this point again a little later in his gospel when the subject of honor comes up again. This time when the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest, what does he say? Who's greater? One who sits at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But wait, I am among you as one who serves. In Jesus' kingdom, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And maybe this story does something else too. By telling a story that makes the point loudly that human beings are never able to put God in their debt. Never able to put God in their debt. Right? You do all these things. Care well for the poor. <laughs> Didn't put God in your debt. Give your life for someone else, your friend. Even if you did that, would not put God in your debt. It's a normal way of living in the pattern of the kingdom. None of that puts God in your debt. None of that gets you honor in the way that the religious leaders thought of honor. Jesus always confronting it's a reminder to us. The way of a disciple begins and ends with grace.
with grace. The baptismal liturgy, yet if we fall into sin, do not despair. God's gospel, God's grace is bigger than our sin. Grace is given free of charge. As Paul will write to the Romans about the mysterious riches of God's sovereign grace, he asks the rhetorical question, who has given a gift to God? Who has given a gift to God? The answer, no one. Not possible. May God grant that we live as those who serve others and our God out of the power of the gift that keeps us humble and enables us to do far more than we can ask or imagine. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy 